From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serra. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, taxi, RV, camper, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. A special hello to all of you listening in on one of our affiliate stations down the line, the podcast, of course, at TalkZone.com. Uh, those of you who uh, take the show wherever you go on your mobile device using the Conspiracy Show app, and also those of you who have subscribed to the YouTube channel and, and uh, catch our YouTube stream. Incidentally, if you haven't, please check it out. Just go to YouTube, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett, and be sure to hit the subscribe button. We've set a rather modest goal of 10,000 subscribers sometime in 2017, and only you can help us get there. Ian is here, Ian Robertson, on the other side of the glass, twisting the knobs and dials, but uh, Albert and Ryan are off tonight. Uh, we have uh, quite an action-packed hour coming up. Uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, of course, uh, will be here for our Paranormal News Roundup. She'll join us at the bottom of the hour. We do this every month, and uh, we've got some great stories. Normally on the, uh, the program, we have our remote viewing experiment, What's in the Box? We weren't able to do it this week. We'll do it next week. But Rosemary is uh, going to talk to us about remote viewers and what they should do if they get some sort of a, a premonition about a disaster that's going to happen in the future. And it might surprise you to know that the authorities are saying, we don't want to hear from you, remote viewers. We don't want to know about it. So we'll talk about that. What's the best thing to do if you get a premonition of a disaster? We'll also talk about a painting in the United Kingdom that's caused, or some believe has caused, a number of house fires. It's called the Crying Boy Painting. And back in the 80s, there were a number of house fires, and the only thing left unscathed was this painting of a crying boy. And uh, we'll also talk about the little people of Alaska. That's all coming up with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Uh, but first, coming up next week, a big march. It's the sixth annual march against Monsanto. Millions against Monsanto, it's called. And uh, this is happening all over the world. People up in arms about uh, genetically modified organisms. And of course, the, the company largely responsible for producing GMOs is Monsanto. And um, organizers have them in their crosshairs. Uh, as they try to educate the public about the dangers of genetically modified organisms. Coming up, we have James Conner, who is the co-founder, co-manager, I think I have that right, of Millions Against Monsanto. Hey, James, how are you? Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Good. How are you, Richard? Very well. So, uh, Millions Against Monsanto. Tell us about the event. It's uh, happening May 20th. Uh, May 20th is actually the March Against ah, Monsanto. Okay, yeah, there's some confusion there. The March Against Monsanto, and then this is Millions Against Monsanto. So when is uh, this... It's hosted by Millions Against Monsanto, right. and I, I'm the uh, co-founder and manager. All right. So have you seen it, uh, have you seen interest in, in this uh, sw swell? Has there been a groundswell since 2012? Well, our, our first march, um, which was a really simple march, I mean, we didn't put as much into it as we, we do now. Um, there were like about 3,000 marchers. I've noticed that every year it gets a little less. Um, Interesting. I think that people are just kind of saturated at this point, but there's also a lot more uh, awareness now. Right. So I guess people don't feel the need to go out. <laughs> well, you know, that's an excellent point, because I think maybe people are feeling like marching is great, Raising awareness is great, but I need to do more. And, you know, I'll give you an example. My my wife, I call her the mighty Aphrodite. Will she go into a grocery store, and if she doesn't see local produce when it should be in season and it should be in the store, she calls for the manager, and she gives them hell. 
Well, that's the way to do it. <laughs> and so I think, I think more people, I think people are becoming empowered that way and they're deciding I am going to vote with my wallet. Exactly. And that's our philosophy at Millions Against Monsanto Toronto. Yeah. Uh, it's, vote it, with your dollar. Yes. And, and, um, I, you know, I want to, I want to ask you about the, um, the sort of the state of the, um, this battle. When you look over in, in Europe, for example, I think back in 2015, there were about 19 countries at that time uh, in Europe that had banned genetically modified organisms. Full uh-huh. stop. What's what, where? Where are we now in this battle against this behemoth and, and genetically modified organisms? Well, um, most of well, all of uh, the European Union has some something, uh, some kind of uh, labeling or some kind of provisions. Uh, Russia has banned GMOs um, completely. Mm-hmm. Um, Canada and the U.S. are really the only ones that don't have anything set up. There's no labeling, um, and and the more alarming thing is that there is no uh, government testing or independent testing. Basically, what corporations like Monsanto do is they do their own testing. They skew it. Yes. They uh, basically <laughs> buy off all the right people. They submit their scientific uh, conclusions, and the government just takes them on their word. And that's the result of a lot of cronyism that's going on, a lot of lobbying. Yeah, Dr. Shiv Shoper has been on the show, and, and uh, yes. a former um, employee with uh, Canada Health, and, and um, he, he blew the whistle and said that, that it, Canada Health actually refers to the people that it's supposed to be keeping an eye on uh, uh-huh. as their clients. Yeah. So that, uh, that uh, really speaks volumes. And, of course, I know you've talked about this, too, and that is the... Uh, the FDA, the relationship between the, the, the Food and Drug Administration and uh, Monsanto. Uh, yeah, the, the revolving door. Yeah, uh, the food czar, was it, uh, was it Michael Taylor? Michael Taylor. Michael Taylor ended up... He jumped back and forth between Monsanto and the FDA several times. Yeah, uh, talk about conflict of interest. Oh, totally. It's cronyism to the, to the hilt. <laughs> Um, and and oh. there's a relationship between, like, these uh, regulatory agencies like the FDA and the EPA, they're all being bought off, basically, um, by corporations. I mean, corporations actually have more power in the government, I think, than anyone else. Mm. Well, that is, unfortunately, and I, I, I'm not trying to be alarmist here, but that's that's the definition of fascism. Yeah, it's corporatocracy, basically. Mm. Um and corporations consider themselves to be persons under the law. Now, if, if that's the case, then and they were um, perpetuating these crimes against humanity, they should be held accountable as any person would. That's what I've always said. But <laughs> there's a lot of conflicts here. I mean, um, Monsanto says that their uh, products, their food are substantially equivalent, yet at the same time, they can turn around and say that they are unique, and so they therefore deserve to have ownership of all these patents. <laughs> it becomes intellectual property. Right, right. Um, let's just um, provide kind of a a primer here for listeners who have heard the term GMO bandied about, and they're told that they should avoid certain GMO products, but they're not really clear on why. What, when we talk about a genetically modified organism, and that could be a dairy cow, it could be a chicken, uh, it could be um, a papaya. What do we yeah. what is what do we mean by genetically modified? Well, basically, it's a living organism that has had the DNA of another organism forced into it, 
It's something that would not have occurred in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, there is re- we really don't know what the impact is, is going to be on not only our health but the environment because of the inadequate testing. Um, so basically, uh, 98% of packaged foods on your grocery store shelf are GMO. Um, 98%? Oh, yeah. It's a huge amount. It, it packaged foods, I would say. And, and is, that, is that because uh, corn and the various um, uh, byproducts of corn, corn syrup and corn starch, and is, is, is an ingredient yeah. in so many foods? Is corn the culprit? Is that the reason it's so high? Yeah, it's omnipotent. It's not just corn. No. But um, basically, the, most of the GMOs are used for um, animal feed. Mm-hmm. Um and then when the animal eats it, it affects that animal. And then when you eat it, it's transferred to you. You're, you're basically changing your DNA by eating this stuff. Um, some of it is used for fuel, um, but the rest of it goes basically to junk food. But like mm. we've got things like glucose, fructose, and uh, aspartame, right. which is the fecal matter of genetically modified E. coli. So they've genetically modified a bacteria in this case, yes. and that's aspartame. Yeah, it's pretty nasty. <laughs> that didn't even, that uh, aspartame. I mean, that's a whole other show. But uh, um, to my memory, that didn't even require FDA. That just went straight through, wasn't it? Donald yeah. Rumsfeld, yeah, absolutely, uh, that uh, sort of rammed it through because he had, I don't know, he, he had he had served on the Ronald Reagan uh, re-election campaign, and so uh, yeah. That was this was kind of his reward that he would be able to get that that was on his wish list anyway and it had been refused many times mm. Monsanto has a history that plays out like a James Bond villain <laughs> <laughs> it's really unbelievable they're uh, responsible for DDT which was ultimately banned um, they created Agent Orange mm-hmm. um, they they're a chemical company they're not an agricultural company. And what they ultimately, the bottom line is making money. That's They're not really concerned about the environmental impacts uh, of, of their products. They just don't want to lose one dollar. So their, their mission statement, or at least it used to be, is feed the world. And this was their, <laughs> their kind of their creed that, that um, you know, there is no way to feed seven and a half billion souls on this planet using sort of traditional... Uh, farming, and so we can increase yield, and we can increase nutritional uh, value. Have they succeeded in either of those things? Absolutely James? not. <laughs> Absolutely not. In fact, what happens, and this is part, my focus. Uh, I mean, a lot of people are interested in um, getting GMOs labeled. My, I, I support it. I, I, I do everything I can to support it. But my th- thoughts on this are any informed shopper can avoid them, and and we're talking about voting with your dollar. What I'm most concerned about is the pesticides that are used, because they can't grow these GMOs without their Roundup glyphosate pesticide. Right. So I would like to see that banned. Let's talk about um, let's talk about glyphosate when we come back. Uh, James Connor is with us, co-founder and manager of Millions Against Monsanto. Back with more of the Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We are back with James Conner, 
co-founder, co-manager, Millions Against Monsanto Toronto. I want to talk about glyphosate, and this is the chemical compound in things like Roundup, which is a very uh, uh, widely used herbicide. It's and the most. The most. <laughs> and uh, so the idea is that the crop, uh, they they um, are they they genetically modify the crop so that it can withstand being absolutely doused and inundated with with this herbicide Roundup. Yes. Um, so that it's that the plant doesn't die, that it's resistant to the herbicide, so that it can kill the weeds. The problem is that glyphosate uh, ends up in things like breast milk and in our in our bodies, in our in our tissues. Uh, have there been? I know there have been animal studies, studies on rats and so forth. But what yes. are the studies telling us about the effects of glyphosate? Well, we do know that it's in our air, it's in our water, it's been found in vaccines. It's almost become ubiquitous at this point because mm. we're, we're soaking the earth with it. Yeah, we're swimming and, in it. Yeah, we are. And um, what happens with the GMO crops is that eventually um, the weeds become resistant. So they have to keep dosing more and more every year. And, and this thing about higher yields is totally false um, because organic farming can compete or outperform GMO technology. And without the use of all of these toxic chemicals that are being dumped on the planet. And how long can we continue to do that? I mean, the birds rely on a lot of the insects that are being killed, so the birds are affected. It's, it's a chain reaction. It's, it's going to be one of the most dangerous things that could happen to our ecosystem. Uh, there's a class action lawsuit, um, I'm sure in other jurisdictions as well, but I was reading recently about the one in California, and these are... These are 700 gardeners and agricultural workers in the San Fernando Valley who claim their non-Hodgkin's lymphoma has mm-hmm. been caused by glyphosate. I'm sure you're watching that case uh, yeah. very carefully. And the, well, there's, there's many, many lawsuits out at this point. Um, the World Health Organization declared uh, glyphosate to be carcinogenic, and recently it's gone through in California that they have to label their Roundup product now, which they're not happy about, mm. and labeled that it is a carcinogenic. Um, it's also affecting the bees, the the butterfly population. Um, it's affecting biodiversity. We're becoming a monoculture. We've, we've lost, I, I read a statistic the other day that was so alarming. Over the last uh, several hundred years, we've lost about 90% of our vegetables and fruits. Wow. It's yeah, certainly the heirloom. All the heirloom species are going exactly, and their end game is to have ownership of our our seeds of our food supply. I mean, the Monsanto seeds you're not allowed to uh, use them the following year, which farmers traditionally do the the seed saving and sharing. They can't do that anymore. Oh, these are the Terminator seeds. Have have, have the the Terminator seeds come into market? I know they were working on it. I hadn't realized that they had completed the uh, the Terminator seed. Uh, any, it says right on the, you get Monsanto seeds, it says right on the, the bag that you have to follow very strict guidelines in terms of planting this. You cannot save the seeds. You can't with any of their seeds. And then, of course, we've got the BT, uh, seeds that split the lining of the insect's stomach when they eat it. Right. And then when you eat it, it gives you what little perforations in your gut. We call that leaky gut syndrome. Yes. I, there's and, a connection between that. Some say the leaky gut syndrome caused perhaps by the uh, 
uh, the glyphosate, and uh, in combination with certain vaccines, that may have some correlation, not necessarily causation, but correlation to things like autism. Exactly. And we see allergies, um, like, it's, it's allergies are on the rise. Autism has been on the rise, actually, since the GMOs were first introduced. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, the pharmaceutical industry and the biotech industry, they're very, they're basically the same thing. So you end up with a sick population that then has to take all of, all kinds of drugs. So <laughs> it, it, it really all goes down to the, the almighty dollar again. Well, the rest of the world seems to be waking up. We mentioned uh, the the EU, uh, I, I believe Germany, France, Greece. Uh, I I'm not. Don't quote me on this. I think England. Yeah. Now. Um, well, they've got labeling laws. Right. Yeah. And yet, we can't even get a labeling law passed in a place like California a couple of years ago. Liberal, oh, progressive California, because you know Coca Cola and Dow, they all rose up and. A lot of money to to try and defeat that bill, and that's when Tammy Canal uh, started the march against Monsanto. Actually, after mm-hmm. that bill was defeated. So let's get back to the idea of. Let me remind listeners: uh, James Connor is with us, co-founder, co-manager of Millions Against Monsanto. So let's get back to the idea of of uh, people voting with their feet or voting with their um, their dollars. And you know, we've we've seen some wonderful examples of this. I mean. You know, I'm a big free market guy, and here's a perfect example where the free market decided, you know, McDonald's, for example, now free-range chickens, no hormones mm-hmm. in their chickens. That's people like you and me and Ian in the other room voting with their dollars. Absolutely. That's the power mm-hmm. that we have. Absolutely. I mean, marching is great, but so w- what else can we do? W- who else should we be targeting uh, in terms of, uh, you know, voting with our dollars? Well, I, like I say, my main focus is uh, pesticides. I would like to – I actually – I was going to talk about this at the March, but I'll give you a little sneak peek. All right. <laughs> um, Mike, I want to see glyphosate banned, but contacting our government doesn't usually have much outcome. So I am appealing now to the First Nations and working with Idle No More. I would like to see glyphosate banned on all native territory across Canada because they're self-governed and they can do that. Ah, and how are they using it? How are they using it? Uh, it's really more to send a message. I, I don't know <laughs> whether it's being used on reserves. Ah. The thing that inspired me was that my mother, who recently passed away, uh, she was she's not native, but she was living on a reserve, and I found. Before I got into this uh, activism, I found a bottle of a large bottle of glyphosate in her garage and I got really upset because she was ill and I immediately made the connection between the two. I couldn't believe she was using this in her garden. Uh So then I started thinking about reserves and I thought, well, if we just ban it on all the reserves and make a lot of noise about that, that's going to send a message to the government. You're obviously going to have to have a buffer zone as well. Right. So. It's in its infant stages, but it's something that I, I really want to try and get out to all of uh, the First Nations across Canada. Um, I want to ask you about this one's always troubled with me, troubled me, and you can probably help me decide one way or the other. And that is, you know, the idea that all GMOs are bad. We have to, they have to put them all, you know, to one side of the ledger. I want to ask you, and I, I'm sure this has come across your desk. This discussion, I want to talk to you about golden rice. 
Oh, yeah. Uh, and this is, uh, for people who don't know, this is a, uh, a project going on in the developing world where about 70% of people's nutritional needs come from rice. It's just a huge staple. Now, the other problem they have in the developing world with young uh, people in particular is, uh, uh, you know, uh, early childhood death and blindness because of a lack of vitamin A in their diet. And so, the tall foreheads decided to genetically modify the rice uh, to increase or to to uh, to put the uh, be- various beta carotenes in it, uh, beta carotene synthesis, I think it's called, uh, which which are sort of the precursors of vitamin A, in order to eradicate um, blindness and and uh, early childhood death in the developing world. That sounds on the surface like a pretty commendable, laudable effort. What do you say to that? Uh, Golden Race is a Trojan horse designed to allow biotech companies to gain access to reluctant markets. Mm. Um, the technology is unready for implementation. The crops haven't proven adaptable to the climate of the countries that might benefit from the yields, and the yields are low. Uh, studies show Golden Race cures vitamin A that show it cures vitamin A deficiency are flawed. Um, it's only found in Animal products. Golden rice has been engineered to contain higher amounts of beta carotene, which must be converted by the body into retinol. So, like, there, there's a lot of um, false claims out there ah, about okay. that. They they try to be uh, pretend that they are feeding the world and that they're doing something. The same as Bill Gates and Bono, who are heavily invested in Monsanto. Oh, is that right? Oh, yes. Well, Bill Gates owns 500,000 shares. Ah, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And Bono, who likes to purport that he's feeding the world as well. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. It, it, to me, it's like giving out craft dinner at the food bank. <laughs> yes, exactly. Interest, that's, a, that's a very apt analogy. Yeah. Uh, we just have a few minutes left. Let me remind listeners, James Conner is with us, co-founder, co-manager of Millions Against Monsanto, happening May 20th here in Toronto. How many other events around the world are there? Oh, it's it's in almost every country and every city in the world. Mm. Um, it's huge. I don't know the exact number, but um, mm. for the past six years, uh, every country in the world, after the march, you can see there's usually uh, videos produced with all the different cities that participated. It's a huge number. Uh, give us the list of the worst sort of GMO products in your estimation. Uh, corn is at the top of the list, absolutely. Right. Right. Uh, but then they're they're modifying um, alfalfa now, and that's animal feed again. Mm-hmm. So these traits then are transferred into us when we eat them. These animals are suffering terrible diseases as a result. Um, corn for sure. Soy is another one to avoid completely if you can. Yeah, even I don't even even consume organic soy, and I'm 100% organic. Uh, canola, avoid that like the plague. Right. Um, the sugar beets, which a lot of uh, conventional sugar is made out of glucose, fructose, which is another corn product. Um, it's, it's pretty easy. There's a group called the Dirty Dozen that have the most pesticides. That's another one you should avoid. Right, right. Um, so I would suggest organic an organic diet. That is what I that's what I say when I say vote with your dollar. Don't support companies that support GMOs. And we, as you said, we've seen it happening with um, McDonald's losing a lot of revenue, Coca Cola, all these fast foods. I mean, we came down on Subway a little while ago. They had to change their menu. Uh, they had yoga mat ingredients in their buns. <laughs> well. 
James, um, I wish you the best of uh, success on May the 20th, and uh, here's to many more. Well, actually, here, let's hope we don't have to have many more millions that against Monsanto. Uh, and uh, you know what? You, um, you, uh, you, you kind of convinced me on the, uh, the golden rice issue because I was kind of on the fence on that, but uh, what you're saying makes sense to me. Uh, appreciate your time. Thanks very much. Thank you for having me. James Conner. Co-founder, co-manager, Millions Against Monsanto, Toronto. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal investigator. When the conspiracy show continues, don't go away. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Hey, Rosemary, how are you? Richard, I've been real busy lately. I've been doing a lot of Sasquatch research and paranormal road stories. Oh, wow. Sasquatch, are you hot on the trail? Well, I am, but I think... Bigfoot is interdimensional, so we're likely not to have physical evidence. Yeah, you and I have talked about that. Uh, that certainly explains a lot. Footprints uh, that seem to stop in the middle of the woods and go nowhere. Yeah, I think there may be something to that. A growing body of evidence indicates that there are these elements to it, so I've been putting together a lot of research. I want to talk to you about, this was a story that appeared on a, uh, a blog that's sort of dedicated to extrasensory perception and remote viewing and uh, ESP and so forth. And it had to do with people that have premonitions or remote view a disaster. The suggestion was they shouldn't bother contacting the authorities. What do you make of that? I agree entirely. It's a very problematic area. The fact of the matter is, people do get precognitions and premonitions of events and sometimes big disasters. We usually realize it after the fact. We may not get all of the information uh, that would indicate exactly what's going to happen, where and when. And the problem is that when you alert authorities, you can't give them any helpful information uh, because of those missing pieces. And you're likely to be ignored and maybe even written off as a nutcase. (laughs) Well, because in some cases... Let's say, for example, and this was cited in the blog, the Madeleine McCann investigation. This was the girl that disappeared back in 2007 when her family was on vacation in Portugal. And the authorities, there was just a deluge of tips, people claiming to have, I mean, never mind tips. You know, people think they may have seen something or whatever. They have to chase those down. On top of all these people, oh, I had a dream, I had a premonition, it can muddy the water. It can, because uh, even though people do get accurate impressions and psychic information, nobody is 100% accurate, and they may see pieces of things that they then project onto to try and fill out the picture. But there's an example from history about the spectacular failure of this kind of reporting, and it it goes back to the 1960s and 70s. -hmm. There was a disaster in Wales where a coal mountain came apart, and there was a massive landslide that hit a very small village and uh, it killed a lot of children in school and some adults. Well, it came out later that many people in the village, uh, including the children, had had premonitions and even dreams that the mountain was going to slide down and people were going to be killed. So there was an effort that went underway to establish premonitions bureaus on both sides of the Atlantic in London and New York with the idea that they would just collect all the tips from people having psychic Uh, hits on things and hopefully avert catastrophes like this. And sad to say, Richard, they were both abject failures for just things that we mentioned. Nobody could get an entire accurate picture of something that was going to happen. And some of the predictions were just, 
you would say, off the wall? Did they uh, inaccurately see events or... One possible explanation is you get a premonition about something, but because forces change, the event doesn't take place. Something prevents the event from taking place. So it got to be very, very problematic, and uh, the bureaus only lasted about a year or so, and then they closed. Okay, but let me give you um, an, um, a for instance. Let's say you're manning the counterterrorism desk at Homeland Security. Now, and let's assume someone, well, Ingo Swan is, has passed on, but someone... A remote viewer uh, with a pretty good track record, or a psychic, maybe it's a Yuri Geller, or someone like a, an Ingo Swan, and they call the counterterrorism desk and they say, I had a premonition, I see something happening in Chicago, whatever, on such and such a date. What do you do with that? I mean, if you have someone who's got a pretty good track record, don't you have to consider that? My feeling is that the government has relied upon highly trained individuals who are looking at those sorts of things all the time, and they follow very strict protocols for how they get their information. So, yes, but when the average citizen calls up with something, it's likely not to be taken seriously, or who knows, you might even become a suspect. Right. Now, let's say that a government bureau started getting a lot of similar claims that started fitting a pattern, well, that would be something then to take notice. But it usually never even gets to that point because the information is automatically disregarded. You know, after 9-11, after the terrorists flew planes into the World Trade Center in 2001, uh, we again had this hindsight of premonitions and precognitive dreams and whatnot about this disaster. But again, they were in pieces, and nobody had put together the entire scenario on that date in that way. And uh, I think uh, some of that may have to do with the fact that our our psychic ability is uh, not very well developed and maybe in the future we'll be able to be like uh, that film Minority Report where uh, Tom Cruise starred as a cop who paid attention to information from individuals who were called the precogs. They would get precognitions of murders and crimes that were about to take place, and they were highly accurate. Maybe we'll get there in the future. All right, we'll take a time out. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, Paranormal Investigator, the website VisionaryLiving.com, back with more of our Paranormal News Roundup right after this. Stay with us. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. She joins us once a month at this time for our Paranormal News Roundup, a look at some of the uh, fascinating stories in the news regarding the supernatural and, uh, well, even cryptozoology. Now, here's a story uh, that comes out of the, uh, the Los Angeles Times uh, way back uh, in the uh, the late 19th century, I think around 1895, and it had to do with a strange sighting, a number of witnesses, they call it the Burbank Bat Light. The Burbank Bat Light. Tell us, Rosemary, what's this all about? It's really a kooky story about this fiery ball of light that was seen literally emerging from the ground, and uh, it, it seemed to spread uh, fire shaped like wings, bat wings, and it would roll around uh, and scare people and uh, bob along, and then after a while sort of collect itself, sort of roll itself back up. 
and disappear, and nobody knew uh, what it was. But it was um, quite frightening, and it was seen on a number of times. It looked like a, a creature of, made out of fire that was struggling. Hmm. And uh, it's, it's kind of hard to assess what actually took place, and there are a couple of reasons why. Um, the descriptions of it and the fact that it was uh, typically seen on hot nights and it, it was a repeating pattern uh, indicate that it may have been some sort of really weird natural phenomenon, um, even with its kind of bizarre shape. Like ball lightning or something? Uh, maybe not ball lightning, but maybe kind of an earth energy hmm. that um, was able to look like this, look like uh, a ball of fire, when actually it might have been some sort of electromagnetic energy. But this also happened at a time uh, in the late 19th century when these sorts of stories were hoaxed a lot in the media as a way of gaining uh, readers and subscribers. And Fake news from the Los Angeles Times? <laughs> Say it ain't so. <laughs> and uh, uh, these things did happen all over the country. And um, this was uh, rampant during the late 19th century and, and into the early 20th century. Hmm. And most of these stories had a supernatural theme to them. So when I see these stories from a certain era, uh, my eyebrow goes up a bit, and I have to wonder, is it one of those, or is it a, a legitimate story about something supernatural? So this may go down as uh, unknown mystery, uh, an unknown mystery light um, that uh, had a peculiar behavior but uh, was not a demon or an entity or, or anything that had some sort of intelligence. It was not a devil coming out of the molten earth. Right. Well, I mean, have you ever, in all of your years in research, ever come across an account similar to this? Well, that's the other thing, Richard. I have not. You know, um, I've come across, uh, you, know, you know, we have a large body of ghost lights, for example, the famous uh, lights down in Texas right. and in North Carolina. And uh, there is a phenomenon called earthquake lights. And this is an area, of course, where uh, there's a massive uh, fault line, the San Andreas Fault. Um, so you would have um, possibly earthquake um light energy being generated in that area. But hmm. I've never come across a description like this, of this fiery ball with the bat wings. That's very peculiar. Indeed. Okay, this story, I tell you, is, um, I've never read anything like it. It's amazing. It sounds like something right out of Rod Serling's, not the Twilight Zone, but his later show called The Night Gallery. Do you remember that? I do. I love that show. Yeah, me too. So here we have this painting of a, uh, it's called Crying Boy, and uh, uh, it's been owned, I guess, by a number of owners in the United Kingdom, and uh, apparently they are blaming this painting for a series of fires in the 1980s. They say the painting could be cursed. Well, it's an uh, an interesting story that could have different explanations, and the cursed painting is one of them. I do believe that it is possible to curse objects. John Zaffis and I, uh, you know, we've been on your show talking about haunted yes. objects that have been cursed. And if someone is um, uh, intending to put a curse into something while they work, they can do that. An artist would be able to do that. Uh, something could become cursed just out of sorrow or anger or depression. If an artist is in a bad state and maybe, um, you know, prone to 
to being uh, overtaken by the dark side of the spirit world, that could come through as a curse on an object as well. So what happened with this painting? Well, this um, people would have fires uh, in their home. Uh, that they, they would get the painting and the fire would erupt uh, in the home. And there were other crying boy paintings as well. This got to be um, uh, kind of a, a fear craze. Um, and uh, some of it was traced to um, a single artist who uh, supposedly did um, a number of these kinds of styles of paintings, a lot of different variations of young boys with tears coming out of their eyes. And um, there was suspicion that they all might be cursed uh, by this one particular artist. So was this also an urban legend kind of um, mild panic, so to speak, because these things do happen, and uh, things uh, start going around in the media. Now we have social media. It uh, goes viral in an instant, but uh, back then uh, in the 80s when these were taking place, uh, stories would appear in the newspaper, and so uh, people might feed the urban legend by uh, imagining that anything bad that happened to them, uh, perhaps fires that would occur under other natural circumstances, uh, could be blamed on a on a painting, and it kind of fuels uh, the legend. Right. Well, so it may, it may have happened. So it may have happened legitimately the one time where the fire is totally des- destroys the house, and the painting is unscathed, and then from there, because it, I, it mentions that the painting was mass or a crying boy type painting ended up being mass-produced. It just became one of those things that a lot of people ended up having in their houses. So the odds are, you know, you have a house fire, they have one of these paintings in the house, they go, ah, it's the crying boy. Right, let's blame it on the crying boy. Right. And, in fact, um, a newspaper in Britain actually uh, put out a call, you know, send us your crying boy paintings and we'll burn them all and get rid of the curse. And they were inundated. They were swamped. Hmm. So what is this, a combination of a genuine curse, maybe in in one or two instances, and then mass hysteria for the rest? That's what it sounds like to me, was that um, based on what we know about the original, <clears throat> the original painting, uh, there might have been something peculiar about it. Uh, and it in turn spawned uh, an urban legend that took hold with similar kinds of paintings. And researchers uh, tried to uh, trace um, individuals who uh, were reported to be involved in uh, these cursed paintings and they couldn't find them. Well, you know, that doesn't mean they didn't exist, but um, there wound up being some holes in the story, uh, as is often the case with urban legend. Uh, Urban legends tend to be self-fulfilling prophecies, and when people believe them, they take on reality, and we, we see that all the time with things that start out as a fiction, and if people believe them, they become a reality. Sure, sure, I believe that. I mean, you can manifest uh, things like that. Um, you mentioned that you know that it is possible for a for a painter to deliberately curse something. How would they do that? Use a sigil of some sort, and actually, if if, if that were the case, could you find that sigil somewhere buried in the painting? Well, they could do it just through intention. Uh, and um, I'm not saying that the, the painter deliberately cursed this painting. Uh, he might have inadvertently cursed it uh, through, uh, let's say, if he was uh, very depressed and might have been under the influence of negative spirits. Uh, that sort of energy could then come out in 
whatever work he did. But if you're going to deliberately curse something, you can do it just simply by intention. And it would be uh, imbuing the object with an energy by holding it. And certainly if you're painting something, you're putting your own energy into the painting. Mm -hmm. And you would hold an intention for a certain kind of uh, action uh, to take place uh, by the individuals then who would be the recipients of this. Uh, my feeling is that I don't think it, he deliberately cursed it, but it might have been an inadvertent curse, sort of a sad life curse. Right. And finally, we just have a few minutes uh, for this one, but uh, uh, the indigenous people of Alaska, they have some um, you know, wonderful tales about uh, shape-shifting whales and unexplained lights, a lot of paranormal activity up in Alaska apparently, but it, one of the, the stories that has been handed down among the indigenous peoples of Alaska are these stories of little people. And now someone is actually going up there and they're going to research this. I mean, a proper scientific investigation. I think it's a great idea. Uh, Legends of little people are uh, everywhere in Native American lore. And uh, certainly in Alaska as well as throughout the North American continent and elsewhere around the world, um, their counterparts are fairies in, in the Celtic countries. And I do believe that the Earth has these kinds of beings in them. Um, they're almost um, always similar in description in terms of their size, and um, sometimes they have exaggerated features like large noses or they dress in certain ways. Uh, and um, they're up to a lot of mischief a lot. Uh, and uh, so I think it's interesting and uh, very good that somebody is attempting to put a formal study of little people uh, into the literature because we really need this. We researchers really need this kind of documentation so that we can compare it to other uh, traditions of little people around the world. You know, they're very active in Iceland. Yes. Oh, indeed. <laughs> yes. And, of course, um, we had a story several years ago about it. Uh, an archaeological discovery, or I guess it was more anthropological, uh, the, the um, discovery of what they were calling the hobbits, the real hobbits, uh, a race of very, very tiny people uh, that existed sometime in the distant past. So there may be some, some truth to this. And I think one of the things that's important to remember is that cultures that have an oral tradition People tend to, to dismiss the oral tradition and say, oh, that's just the telephone game. One person says something and then the story changes. But these oral traditions are so carefully and closely protected by the community that if one person tells the story incorrectly, you've got the whole community correcting them. That's very true. And uh, they're passed on down through generational lines. Uh, very carefully, and yes, uh, in some cases there are variations of stories, but still the core elements of the story remain consistent. And uh, I've always believed that folklore and mythology have uh, an incredible amount of truth to them. There's truth about how human beings have encountered otherworldly presences uh, throughout history. Well, uh Again, yeah, we can't uh, be so quick to dismiss. Rosemary, always a pleasure. And uh, let me direct people once again to your fabulous website, visionaryliving.com. Check out the uh, the bookstore section. Sixty-some, what, 66, 67 books now uh, published. It's quite a <laughs> Somewhere library. around there. <laughs> All right, who's counting? All right, Rosemary, until next time, thank you. 
Thank you very much, Richard. Good night. Good night. That's it for us. All right, we will uh, be back next week with a brand new show. Hope you'll be along for the ride. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. Thank you.